what a story. What an absolute cracker this morning that we're going to explore together. Um, thank you, folks. So good to see you all. Welcome. So good to see you folks up there, those gathered, those at home. Thank you so much, Ali, for leading us through the service. And bless your hearts, those that went and moved your cars. We'll get that sorted for next week. Assume next week you can park in the village hall, as we have done for the last... 30 years? Not sure, something like that. But we'll try and get that one sorted, see if we can work out what went wrong there. So let's dig into this passage. It is a long passage, but gosh, there's so much to explore. I've heard that you've been enjoying it in your life groups, exploring Elijah. I am just such a fan of this portion of scripture. And today is such uh, an extraordinary standout moment. I wonder if I was to sit down with you over a cup of tea and, and say, look, what are your big standout moments in your life? I wonder what you'd say to me. Because there are so many significant moments in our lives, aren't there? Like a beautiful birthday, a, a lovely holiday. That moment, and I'm sure you'll all agree, when you're sat in a restaurant and you pick up a burger and you take that first bite <laughs> and the sauce just dribbles down your chin and you realise this is the best burger I've ever eaten. That is a significant moment in anyone's life. And yes, I've had that moment. Um, but they're not really standout moments. What are the big ones? I mean the ones that change you profoundly. Without doubt, these last 18 months would be included, I think, in all of our lives, in the entire world's life. We've all been profoundly changed and affected. We need to be kind to each other more than ever. Love that prayer for compassion. We need the compassion for one another and for our hurting communities as we begin to step forward as family together. But perhaps after you said to me, yes, so the last 18 months, Matt, perhaps you'd begin to think of other things in your life, maybe the birth of a child or a major move, moments where things profoundly changed in your life forever. But what if I asked you about your spiritual journey of faith? What have been the standout moments for you in your relationship with God? Perhaps the first yes you ever gave to God. The moment of yielding for the first time. Perhaps your baptism. Excited. Potentially we've got some baptisms coming up. I'm so looking forward to that. Perhaps an overseas mission you went on or seeing your prayers answered in some amazing way. Perhaps there's a seemingly insignificant conversation or a word spoken over you that actually when you look back you realise it's never left you. What that person said stayed with you. Today I want to invite you to enter in with me to explore this extraordinary standout moment in the life of Elijah. In fact, in the life of the nation of Israel at the time. In fact, an extraordinary standout moment in the Old Testament. Because there are plenty of big standout moments in the Old Testament. The kids are doing another one today downstairs. You can name them off the top of your head, the flood or the Red Sea parting or the Ten Commandments or David and Goliath, the walls of Jericho. The fascinating thing to me as I thought about this is that every single standout moment, God's saying the same thing. Every moment, he's saying, don't you realise I am God? I am God. It's not Pharaoh. It's not you. It's, it's, it's not this kingdom over here or this king here. I am God. Follow me. Trust me. Come back to me. Is there any other God beside me? 
There is no other rock, I know not one, says God in Isaiah 44 verse 8. Here this morning is one of these great standout moments. God's saying exactly the same thing. To a people who are struggling to choose what to believe and who to follow, he says it's time to realise again that he is the only rock of ages, the only Lord of all. So let's have a look at it as we whiz through this story. Can we bring up the PowerPoint? Okay, so we're on the Mount of Victory, hungry for God. This is our, 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 our sessions in Elijah. Uh, nope. And we went back. Viv, can we... Uh, Viv, June, can we bring up uh, my PowerPoint, please? It might be skipping. Can you skip to the next one for me? Let's wait for it. Up it comes. Here we go. That's the big stand-up moment. And the next one. Thank you. Fantastic. So we begin, and the battle lines are drawn. Now let's remember the devastating situation that's going on throughout the land at this time. Israel's been suffering under nearly three years of the most appalling drought, the most appalling conditions. And it's an act of judgment that's begun at the command of Elijah. Do you remember his great entrance when he turns up from nowhere? And he says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand this day, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Extraordinary. Boom, Elijah turns up and there is no rain, not a drop. And Ahab in the interim years tries everything to hunt down Elijah. But to no avail, Elijah is kept safe. But now the Lord comes to Elijah, he speaks to him and he says, it's time for the drought to end, Elijah. So now and only now, Elijah goes and sees the king. And in one sense we may be tempted to see this as a mighty standoff between a powerful king and a mighty prophet. But behind the scenes, there's a much greater battle going on. God himself is facing down the grip of a lie from Satan the liar and the deceiver that has got an entire nation enslaved in idolatry and wickedness and folly. In this moment, the battle lines are drawn and we see the enemy make the first move. It begins with a lying accusation. Of course it does. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, Is it really you, you troubler of Israel? You see, the great enemy of God's people has been working behind the scenes these last three years to twist the story, to blame the whole thing on Elijah and his God, Yahweh. It's the name that was given to God. Uh, the name God uh, revealed, it was given to Moses uh, when he encountered God. Yahweh, I am who I am. It's Yahweh's fault, says the king. You troublemaker of Israel, he says to Elijah. Your fault, all this suffering, all this death, you're doing, you are to blame without doubt. The enemy wants to knock Elijah out early on in the battle feel the guilt of it all on his shoulders to weigh him down. But it's a lie and Elijah knows it. For it was actually the king who was the true troubler, not Elijah. And Elijah tells him. You see the king's role, and I can't go into this in detail, but in the Old Testament, the king's role was to lead the people in their following of Yahweh, of God. To be the chief worshipper. To lead them in their devotions, to 
keep and exercise the just and righteous laws of God so that the people might prosper and flourish, so there might be justice and joy in the land and so that God's name might be glorified. That was the role of the king, not to sit on some throne and wear some crown. And yet instead, Ahab has refused to obey the commandments of God. Worse than that, he's deliberately breaking them and teaching others to do the same. Through his marriage to Jezebel, he's encouraged the people to turn to worship the images of the pagan Baals or or, or the god Baal himself with its attractive and visual and carnal and exotic qualities. The people had turned to this so-called god of weather, ironically, and harvest. And the accompanying Asherah, this mother god of fertility with her statues and idols and Asherah poles and the prophets of God in this time, the true prophets of God, of Yahweh, had been round up and killed, and some were in hiding. Because of Ahab's failure of duty, his weakness, his abdication, the country is in crisis, and yet he levies the blame at Elijah. You, traveller of Israel. You see, we need to be aware, and I can't go into this in detail this morning, literally we could, we could explore this for hours. It's such an extraordinary passage. But I'll pace through as fast as I can. But we need to take note here that there is... Behind every physical battle, a spiritual battle for truth. There just is. The enemy wants to distract, divert, accuse, flatter, obfuscate the truth from God's people. It matters not as long as we're nullified how he does it. The great liar loves to twist half-truths to keep us in the dark. And the reality is that we live in a society that seems to value truthfulness in leadership less than ever before, bizarrely in a society that's glued to our social media, all of us are, in one way or another, and yet this very medium is designed to cycle and dig up and present to us over and over and over again half-truths and conspiracy theories and all sorts of anti-scientific nonsense and all sorts of half-truths that lead people astray and make people feel either empowered or bitter or vulnerable or cross. And it's nonsense. Trying to reframe reality. Trying to keep things broken and confused, accusatory. Trying to keep... Truth's hidden. Friends, we need to be careful. It's all I'm saying this morning in this one. Have our eyes open to wisely weigh the worldviews and the opinions we accept as truth. To enter into reasoned conversation. Examine the narratives we're consuming, especially those that play to our emotions, that make us feel, oh, in some way slighted, or make us feel there's some great threat that we need to, you know, sort out. Just be careful. We need to work out what we're consuming because God is always on the side of truth and the liar lives up to his name. In this particular example here, the enemy attempts to turn the truth on its head in such a way that Elijah should feel guilty and the king should feel hard done by. Elijah's having none of it. He bats it away, declares enough is enough. It's time to bring the truth out into the light. I'm going to click this button and I don't know what's going to happen. We could get him. Uh, go, Go for it. Go on, June probably better than me clicking it. Yes, that's, that's better. So Elijah summons King Ahab, you and all the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who your queen delights so much and you all come out to join me and the place of the great showdown is now set, Mount Carmel. Now Carmel is not actually one mountain. It's a beautiful mountain ridge 
a fertile land. It's in the northwest of the country. Have a look when you get home on your, on your maps, your Google Maps, running from the coastline of the Med down southeast for 12 miles or so. And the name Carmel literally means beautiful garden and vineyard, no doubt because of the rain that falls on this higher ground that produced lush forests and beautiful, rich grassland. Indeed, its beauty was renowned and revered by the poets and the prophets of the age. We read in Song of Songs, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. How beautiful you are. How pleasing, my love, with your delights. I don't recommend, gentlemen, if you're trying to woo a lady, that you tell her that her head reminds you of a mountain. Um, (laughs) But back then... You know, this was it. Mount Carmel is beautiful. And it was an archetype of all that was beautiful in Israel, of blessing and flourishing of God's goodness to them. But right now, after years of drought, can you imagine what it looked like? It would have been brown and crispy and dry and arid, a symbol of Israel's heart and spiritual condition. It had been so long since the rain had fallen. Three years, three years of nothing, not a drop. The people and the nation were desperate. And so they now headed to this barren place. Let us go up, the families would have said. Let us pack some food and supplies. Let us go up, for Elijah has called us and the king will be there. And as they began to arrive, they would have realized that even their beautiful Carmel was barren and dry. And then at some point, the king would have arrived in his chariot, splendid, glorious, Surrounded by nearly 1,850 priests and prophets of Baal and Asherah. And it would have been a sight to behold as he proudly strode up, surrounded by this religious elite, all dressed in their pomp and their ritual and their representatives of the so-called power of the gods. And the people would have oohed and aahed and fussed and look, aren't they extraordinary? This high level of society that was allowed into the very royal courts themselves. Those that sat at the queen's table. And there in the middle of it all, he stood. (laughs) I love Elijah. This solitary, rough-looking, camel-hair-wearing brute of a bloke. And he just stood there. A solitary figure, surrounded by the crowds and the kings and the priests. Most of them never seen him before in person. There were no photos that went round or news updates. They just heard his name. Elijah, 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 Elijah. And finally they saw him. It's the one that caused the drought. Him. And in the middle of it all, he stands up. And he cries aloud, How much longer will you waver? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord, Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Then follow him. But the people were completely silent. If we can go to the next slide. The people didn't say a word. My guess is they just didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to believe. They've heard so much of these lies about Elijah, this great enemy who'd caused all this stuff. and, And they didn't know what to do when it came to worship. Because they looked at the king and the priests and the glory and the splendor and they wavered, they hedged their bets as they'd been doing for years. Yes, they were thirsty. Yes, they were starving. But still they wavered. 
Perhaps a little bit of Baal and, and, and a little bit of Yahweh is best. Perhaps if we please a Shearer and then occasionally pray to Yahweh, we might get through this. And so they wavered. And the Hebrew word has a beautiful double meaning here. Wavering and hobbling. Wavering and hobbling between these two positions. Rather than being a blessing, this position they were holding actually for years was causing them to spiritually hobble to spiritually limp. And Elijah cries out, how much longer? How much more wavering and hobbling? You see, there is so often a great wisdom in holding tension, holding intention, opposing opinions, folks. It is the sign of a mature person. Someone who can see the values in different things, find understanding, compromise, harmonizing positions, but there are certain things in each of our lives where we have to be clear. Certain core values where it really, really matters. Certain things we have to decide one way or another that are not, mm, perhaps, or oh, maybe, or maybe sometime or some way, but yes or no. And how we stand before God is one of those. Because if he is God, then folks, doesn't he deserve our everything? Really? If he is God, then doesn't he deserve our time and our talents and our commitment and our passion and our best? And if he is not, then let's stop the whole shebang right now. That's what Elijah's saying. It's a decision for everyone in our faith. Am I in or am I out? Is it yes or no? Giving God a solid yes does not mean you have to become some narrow-headed, fundamentalist, religious bigot that won't listen to anyone ever. It doesn't mean you have to stop being rational or creative or loving or caring. The spirit at work will make you all of those things and more. It doesn't mean you won't ever doubt or question or struggle or wrestle or explore. We all will. We should. It's all part of a real and wonderful relationship with God. But it does mean that under it all, we take seriously the call of God. We take seriously Jesus. We really and truly turn our lives towards God and we give him our yes. Because friends, the invitation of God has always been, come and take me by the hand and let's walk together into the joy and the love and the purpose that he has for each one of us, that he has for you and for me, to reach out to this hurting world. But when we're divided, when we um and ah, we don't walk, we hobble. We don't run or stride, we wobble. We take steps to the left and fall back to the right. We stagger forward only to slip back behind. We veer this way and that. We meander round in circles he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, Micah 6, 8. And what does Yahweh require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I wonder this morning, is it time to place your hand firmly in his and start truly walking with Father God? Okay, let's whiz on. June. For Elijah, it's time to sort this hobbling out, to break this compromising fudge that the people had got themselves into. And he declares how it's going to happen, right? He says, I'm the only prophet left. You've got all these 450 prophets of Baal. That's what's going to happen here. Bring two bulls. You may choose whichever one you want, okay? And you cut it up. You put it on the altar and the wood of your choice, but you must not set fire to it. I will prepare the other one. 
And then we'll call on the name of God. You call on your God, I will call on Yahweh. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And this time, the people got it and they said, yes, okay, we agree, that makes sense to us. And so it begins one of the greatest showdowns in the whole of the Old Testament. And from a human perspective, the odds were anything but fair. 450 verses 1. 450, all in unison, calling upon their God, the lone prophet of Yahweh. But this is what was agreed, and this is exactly what happens. And once the prophets of Baal in their great number begin now to do what they know how to do so well, what they know best. They begin to call on the name of Baal, dancing and the same word, hobbling. Brilliant. They're hobbling around the altar, round and round, bobbing their heads up and down and shouting over and over again, working themselves up. And you can imagine the people all watching on, calling on from the sidelines, go on, show us. And the king and Elijah watching on too, but absolutely nothing happens. After hours of this nonsense, Elijah finally speaks up. Noontime, he begins to mock them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffs. For surely he is a god, perhaps he is daydreaming. Or he is busy, literal translation, relieving himself. Perhaps he's gone for a wee. I kid you not, it's there in the text. Maybe he's away on a trip, he's having a holiday, he's snoozing. You need to wake him up. Try it louder, Elijah says. And so they do. He winds them up and they go for it. They begin to shout even louder. They get more frantic. They whip up into a frenzy and following their normal custom, they now begin this gruesome, horrible sight of cutting themselves and blood runs everywhere and they rave and wail all afternoon until evening. But we read there was no sound, no reply, no response. Three devastating declarations, no sound, no reply, no response. This man-made religion was hollow. They knocked on the door and they found nothing behind it. Nobody. No one. Now it's Elijah's turn. I'm going to have to speed up here. Despite the fact he's already at a huge advantage, Elijah's not finished stacking the odds against God. I love this. Firstly, there's the 450 to one thing, but secondly, now they've taken up all the time. The people are probably tired and bored by now. Come on. What's going on? We didn't come for this. This is rubbish. But Elijah calls them over. Come on, over here. It's time. And so the crowd come over. Before their eyes, he takes 12 stones and he rebuilds the altar to Yahweh, an ancient altar that had been knocked down by the people in disgust. They didn't want it anymore. So he rebuilds it, these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the full nation, And he digs a massive trench now around the altar. Having put the bull on the wood on the top, he now says, you go and fetch water. Four huge jars of water. Don't know where they got it from. Potentially they dropped down to the Med, the nearby sea. Uh, That's quite possible. Maybe it was precious drinking water that the king and his men had brought with them on a chariot. Who knows? Whatever it was, they soaked. They soaked it. The sacrifice, the altar, the wood, The trench was overflowing. This fight is loaded against God. And the people would have seen this and recognized this, but that's the point Elijah's making here. God doesn't need things to go his way to prove who he is. He doesn't need a good tailwind going downhill on a good day. When God decides to act, the outcome is never, ever in doubt. And I wonder for a moment, did Elijah doubt that God might act? Because boy, is this a risky moment, isn't it? 
can imagine. But like watching a talent show on TV and someone steps out and you're like, ooh, can they do it? Having build, built up so big. Would God speak to him now? Would God reply to Elijah? Would he show up when Elijah asked? Would he partake in this tournament? Because so often feel like that for us in our faith too. It's why faith isn't easy, folks. It's why real faith so often requires risk, stepping out and trusting even though we don't know what's going to happen. Why? Because it's a normal part of a living relationship. Faith is not a, uh, a guaranteed formula. If I do this, 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 God always does this, this, this. No, it's relationship. Learning to live and love with God in our heart at work in us, filled by the Spirit. So we shouldn't fear that, that feeling of risk sometimes, but step into it. Because it's so often then, don't you recognise this, when we're out of our comfort zone, that God does show up in ways we've never encountered before. I wonder when was the last time you truly took a risk for God? If it's a long time ago. And why is that? Why is that? Well, let us bring this to the decisive moment. If we could go, June, here, this massive moment of risk for Elijah. He sets it up for the biggest victory or potentially the biggest humiliation of all time. And in this moment, he knows only to do one thing. He doesn't dance, he doesn't chant, he doesn't hobble, he doesn't wail, he doesn't cut. He prays. Prays. One of the best hungry prayers in the Old Testament. Lord God, prove today you are God in Israel. Prove that I've done this at your word. Answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back to yourself. And as if God couldn't wait a moment longer, we read immediately. The fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench in front of all the people on that barren mountain after the ludicrous religious circus of the prophets of Baal. Now the Lord answers in fire. The living God answers in fire. And his power and his truth and his glory lights up the evening sky and utterly overwhelms the altar and the water and the people. And when all the people see it, they fall face down to the ground and cry out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. It was an incredible, decisive moment of utter clarity and commitment. The enemy's plans were clever, sure. And the priests of Baal were impressive on the outside but utterly hollow and pathetic when the power of God was revealed. This moment, the people realize there is no other God, there is no other rock. The Lord is not a God, but he is the God. And the people are no longer hobbling, but bowing before the glory of the one true living God. You see, on the mountain this day, they realized that God was not against them. He was for them. He was not their troubler, but he was their savior. And through Elijah and the drought and the struggle and through the fire, God was turning their hearts back to him. God was on a mission to win his people back and to bring them home. And the people responded by falling on their knees before him and gave him their hearts again. I don't have time to go through, but the next thing that happens is Elijah now says, right, let's get rid of these disgraceful priests. There's this extraordinary and horrible scene where Elijah oversees the slaughter of all 850 and some 
uh, writers are okay with this and they go, it's a spiritual judgment needed to happen. And I look at it with my modern sensibilities and go, I'm not sure I like this, Elijah. Was there any other way in cold blood just to slaughter all these people, however wrong they may have been? It's interesting to note, it's not God that tells him to do it at this point at all. It's Elijah who chooses. And we don't know the impact it had on him. We know later, uh, Elijah falls and self-doubt, broken. And I've always wondered if there's a link between those two things. But friends, what the story will not let us get away from is that sin is real. Rebellion against the Holy One is real. And there is judgment and there is cost. In this life or in the life to come, God is God and he is holy. And back to the storyline, you'd be looking in your groups this week at the prayer of Elijah, and I'm not going to go into that now, but suffice to say that the rain comes. The rain now falls. He says to Ahab, you better get on your way or your chariot's going to get stuck in the mud, buddy. The rain is coming. And Elijah outruns, I love this, the king's chariot, all the way back to the city, girded by God. His loins, his legs are girded by the Lord, by Yahweh. And he runs home. Instead of this image of brokenness and hobbling, Elijah is now running in the strength of the Lord. He is running in the rain. It is time to run. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Rescued by the strength of the one true God, like a symbol of the renewed spiritual heart of the nation, Elijah runs in the rain. Band, can I ask you to come up? There's one more thing as we are going to finish with a song. If you could be ready to play. That is, friends, for me, one of the most standout, significant moments in the Old Testament. But before we move away, and as we close our service, let's take a final moment in our mind's eye to go back to that mountain. Can you skip forward, Jim? That mount of victory. And as we look around now at this site of the great battle, it's now empty of people and abandoned. There's no longer the sh- sounds of shouting and jeering and wailing. It's all gone like Glastonbury Festival after everyone's left. There's just the detritus left behind. You can see the altar to Baal with its bull still on the, to- on the top, untouched, probably being eaten now by vultures. And all around the altar we see the splatter of the priest's blood the knives and the other religious artifacts now strewn and left abandoned, symbols of folly and broken human religion. And there nearby, the rebuilt altar of Yahweh, but now utterly consumed, black with ash and soot, not a bone left behind, a symbol of the one true God who answered with power. And as we look, we now see the trench, the brown, dry ground around, is receiving drops of God's grace and mercy. Finally, the people have chosen. Finally, they have seen the lies of the enemy and freed themselves from their grip. Finally, they're no longer hedging their bets and hobbling through life. Finally, they bow before the only true living God. And finally, here comes the rain. The great mountain of victory. The battle, the sacrifice, 
the shouting, the jeering, the truth and the power of God revealed for all to see. But come with me. Just skip ahead, please, Jean, to another mountain, to another battle, another sacrifice, this time just outside the walls of Jerusalem, a thousand years later. At first, this seems like no mountain of victory, but a mountain of defeat and suffering and death. For here at the Mount of Crucifixion, the odds are stacked against God yet again. The whole might of the Roman Empire, the entire people shout in accusation at just one innocent man alone. But this time God does not need to be called down. But he's already present. In fact, God is right at the centre of events. It's him who's being shouted at. Here, as on Mount Carmel, rages a battle between good and evil truth and lies. Here the enemy is twisting the people once again to blame the innocent and to turn from God. Here the enemy is laughing as the people shout and mock and spit and jeer. Prove yourself if you're so mighty, Jesus. Prove yourself if you have such power. This is not just one significant moment. This is the most significant moment in the whole of history. Here a sacrificial bull doesn't need to be found. God himself has actually chosen to become the sacrifice. Here, instead of slaughtering the sinful, the man of God, no, the son of God, Jesus, is instead hanging on the cross in their place, dying instead of them. Here, the holiness of God is maintained. The wages of sin are finally dealt with. But not through the death of those that are guilty through the death, the chosen death of the one person who's never done anything wrong. Can I invite you, please, to stand if you're able, folks. Here, the battle is won forever. The enemy's power and lies are dealt with at the cross. Three days later, the power would be seen as Jesus rose again from the dead. God is holy. God is the one and only true God. Just as on Carmel, the people, we realise that as we look to the cross. But we also realise that God is love. And he is amazing. And he loves us more than we could ever know. And he went to that cross for me and for you. So like on Carmel, I just want to say to us all again, it's decision time for all of us. We're either in or we're out. We either say, no, Jesus. Or we say, I want to know more. I give you my yes, Jesus. The next step, if you do that for me. If that's who you are. And as they bowed before God on Carmel and worshipped him, as we finish our time this morning, we're going to finish by worshipping Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, together.